the passage that I'm going to be preaching from this morning is lengthy. I don't want you to fear. Uh, the, the length of the, of the passage that I read does not always uh, directly result or connect with the length of the sermon itself. Um, if that were the case, then this would probably be about a four-hour sermon this morning. It's not going to happen. I'm aiming for about an hour and a half. So um, that's a joke. For, for you folks who are guests, that is a total joke. Um, it'll be more like an hour and 15 minutes. So, um, I am going to read the entire chapter 9 of John. So I know that's a little longer than what you're accustomed to listening uh, to, but um, this is God's Word, and I think there's value in sometimes reading God's Word at length uh, in front of the, the, the people of God. So I'm just going to dive right in. We're on page 861. If you happen to grab one of those guest Bibles in the back, uh, John chapter 9 here, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming. And then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the, man's, the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it, so he told them, He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, But how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can, how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he is old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they can see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing by heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Unbeknownst to the blind man in our passage here, he was about to become the centerpiece of a debate. Now John notes at the beginning of the chapter here how this encounter takes place as Jesus is just sort of walking along. But we, we studious readers of John by now know better than to ascribe anything just purely random or coincidental to anything that Jesus does. I mean, just a chapter ago, back in chapter 8, Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world, which is a passage we'll be looking at here in about three weeks uh, from this morning. But here in chapter 9, he's going to illustrate this truth in very dramatic fashion. But it's not without first a dive into what is called a discussion of theodicy, which, to use Alvin Plantinga's definition, is the answer to the question of why God permits evil in the world. For the Jews in Jesus' day, the problem and the solution was simple. To them, personal suffering is due to personal sin. So you see someone that's suffering, you can automatically assume that they have sinned, or perhaps their parents, in the case of the beggar here. You hear in the disciples' own question as they, they're walking by and they see the blind man, and the disciples turn to Jesus, and, they, and they, they just automatically assume that the condition that the man is in, his lifelong blindness, his suffering from the moment he was born, is either due to his own sin, and in this case, presumably in the womb, because it's a direct cause and effect, right? So he must have sinned somehow in the womb, resulting in his congenital blindness, or perhaps his parents' sin, resulting in the condition. Now, of course, it's true that the scriptures affirm there's a general relationship between suffering and the the presence of sin in the world due to the fall. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, and there's other places that affirm this as well. But Paul says there in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. It wasn't a part of God's original creation. Sin came into the world when Adam sinned. Adam's sin brought death. And so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. You see, the Bible does not teach that at the beginning of time there was some sort of pre-existing yin and yang, you know, these separate but equal powers of good and evil that, that bring some sort of balance to, the, you know, to reality. No, scriptures teach that in the beginning, God, there was only God. God, infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely holy. And God created the cosmos out of nothing. 
with a word. He speaks everything into existence. He sustains it and upholds it alone by the power of his word. And his creation from the very beginning was without blemish. And in his creation, God placed man, a moral being created after his own image, created with the capacity to freely love or to not love. Adam's corrupted, Adam and his sin, I should say, corrupted God's creation and introduced suffering. And the Bible affirms this general connection between the presence of suffering in the world and the, the presence of sin in the world that preceded it. Now, it's also true that the scriptures affirm that some instances of suffering can be due to the particular sins of individuals. Take, for example, where we were just a few weeks ago, back in chapter 5, when Jesus is talking to the man who is sick. There's this underlying assumption that the man's condition is due to a particular sin in his life. Think about the, the consequences of the actions of tyrants in the world. People who perpetrate evil, and as a, a result of their evil, they inflict suffering on others, sometimes many others. Consider the consequences of things like drunken driving or sexual promiscuity, things that not always, but often result in some type of suffering in someone's life. There's a direct cause and effect between the sin and the consequences. The Bible does make room for that. But the Bible does not permit the automatic assumption that one person's individual suffering is always connected to some specific individual sin. There's, there's not always a clear connection. Sometimes suffering seems utterly pointless and random. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for mentioning Job this morning. He, he opened with, with, uh, with Job, and, and I had Job in my mind as I was thinking about this, this problem of evil and how the Scriptures address evil. You look at the, the, the whole story of Job, and, and the point is, Job does not dismiss things. He does not reduce things to some sort of simplistic theology of suffering. No, the story of Job rejects the idea that, sin, that suffering is always the direct result of a specific sin. It's not in the case of Job. And Jesus dismisses it too. He does it right here in our passage. Look again at verse 3. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. That right there undermines all the, the notions that we have that if something's bad in my life, it's because I've done something bad. Or someone else has done something bad. It's not always the case. It can be the case. Maybe oftentimes it is the case, but it's not always the case. This happened, Jesus said, so, the so that the power of God could be seen in him. Now, I don't think Jesus' point here is necessarily that, that God struck this man blind and made him be miserable for his whole life just so he can make some sort of point with Jesus here. I don't think that's Jesus' point. I don't think that aligns with, with the Scripture's presentation of the, the character of God, the, the one who is good and the one who is just, the one who is wise. I think what Jesus is saying here, in light of the whole tenor of the Scriptures, is that even though in his providence... And in his permissive will, God does permit evil and suffering, and yet he always does so with a greater purpose. He does so with a greater purpose. Since you and I, as finite creatures, lack God's infinite perspective, well then, the issue for us is ultimately going to come down to whether or not we can trust in God's goodness in the midst of the suffering. And I know for some of you that might be an, an inspiring thought, and for others it might be discouraging. Because a lot of us want to be convinced. We want those proofs. We want those visible, tangible things that we can wrap our minds around that can convince us of something, and the scriptures don't permit that. Sometimes, maybe. But for the most part, no. 
No, it, it ultimately comes down to a matter of faith. And, and I admit that. But you know what? It's also a matter of faith to assume that because you, you can't see how God can be both good and powerful and at the same time permit suffering that seemingly evil exists in the world, that somehow that undermines his goodness or his existence or his power. Just because you can't see the, the point of suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. And so it's just as much a leap of faith for the skeptic or the critic as it is for the Christian. I like how Tim Keller puts it in Reason for God. He says this, Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because you can't see the point doesn't mean there isn't a point. With time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of it? Truth is, there will always be a dimension to suffering that defies human explanation. But the faithful trust that God is good and has the power to redeem even the worst of it all. Is there any place where that is more clear than on the cross of Jesus? It is there where, yes, God permits great evil to be perpetrated against his innocent son by free moral agents. I don't think for a second that God sort of overrode the will of people to to bring about the crucifixion of his son. And yet, somehow, his designs for this extend from the beginning of time. Is there mystery to that? Perhaps. But it's it's the, the, the witness of the scriptures that God permits, but God has designed. Is at the cross where, yes, God permits his son to experience suffering and even taste death itself, and yet his purposes behind it have implications that extend all the way into the rest of eternity. No matter how difficult it is to understand the presence of suffering in life, the incarnation of Jesus in the cross of Jesus, well, they tell us that God himself has entered into it. He's entered into the the suffering personally. As, we, as I mentioned last week from Dorothy Sayers, in the incarnation, God took his own medicine. God is playing by his own rules. He hasn't asked something of you and of me that he's not willing to, to subject himself to. And, and in the incarnation and in the cross, God stepped out of eternity into the present as Jesus, fully God and fully man. And he took on the fullness of the suffering of the human condition. He took it into himself. He bore all of it. Consider the, the, the questions of the disciples for the blind man, but, but asked about Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. Could you imagine the answer to that question? As people are looking at this man dying on, on the cross, a criminal's death if there ever was one. Who's, whose sins caused this? Who sinned here? Well, do you know what you know what the crowds think? It was his own. It's his sins. That have him there, just like the man on his right and the man on his left. But you and I know better, don't we? We know the answer to that question. The answer to the question of whose sins resulted in his suffering is ours. Our sins. Whether you believe in Jesus or whether you think he's a hoax or a story or a fabrication or a lie or whatever you believe about Jesus, the scriptures say Jesus died for you. He died on your behalf. He died your death in your place. 
It wasn't his parents' sins that landed him on the cross. It wasn't his own sins that landed him on the cross. It was yours and mine. He who knew no sin became sin, that we who are very unrighteous might become the very righteousness of God. As Christians, you and I will always live life in the middle of these tensions. (laughs) There's discomfort in it, I know. It is a, a problem. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called the problem of pain, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Of course, it's a problem. It's a problem for everybody. The question is, which, which worldview, which explanation, which paradigm makes the best sense of it all? And I would say it's, it's the Christian. It affirms, yes, there's, there's evil in this world. We don't, we don't deny the presence of evil. We don't deny that there's suffering. Yes, suffering in general is the direct result of sin in general. We see the connection This world wasn't created to be full of pain and evil, but evil and pain were introduced into the world because God deemed it a greater good to allow man the capacity to choose to love or not to love than to not create him at all. Yes, some particular suffering might just be connected to some specific individual sin, but not always. But no matter what, the scriptures affirm that God is aware of and somehow working in and through all that happens in life with greater redeeming purposes in mind. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, that's all fine and good, Pastor Sean, Um, but in my own suffering, in my own experience of the worst that this life has to offer, the last thing I need right now is some sort of philosophical argument. And I would say, well, you're right. (laughs) You don't need just some philosophical argument. Because a philosophical argument can't touch your suffering. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Jesus himself experienced the deepest of human suffering and pain, and he did it right alongside of us, as one of us. Therefore, he alone is all that you need to face suffering with hope and with courage and with purpose. Though snarky, I love the, <laughs> I heard some chuckles as I was reading through chapter 9 when, when getting to the part where the blind man is responding to the Pharisees and interacting with the Pharisees. It's comical, isn't it? I heard some chuckles out there because his, his snarkiness we, we appreciate it. We appreciate that there's a little bit of sass. He's, he's talking back. He's, he's got the presence of mind and the sharpness of wit to be able to, to banter with, with these experts. And, and though he's snarky and witty and comical, he's not articulating some well-crafted scholarly theodicy. We don't get that from the blind man. I don't know if he even has that to offer. All he has to offer is a witness of what he's seen. <laughs> And what he's experienced. That's all he has. I, I don't know the answers to your question. Do you know how many times the word how appeared in the chapter? I think I counted one, but it was like five or six times. How? How did this happen? How did he do this? Whether he's asking the man or the neighbors or the parents, they can't get enough of this. Their minds are wrapped around the how of it. What is, what is the actual thing that happened? How is this even possible? Jesus is a sinner. You, were, you couldn't have been really blind because there's no way that this actually happened. But did how did it happen? How, how, how? And the man says, I don't know how. I don't have the answers to the questions. 
You could ask me the same thing over and over and over again like you're already doing. And I have nothing new to offer you than what I've already said. And it is this. I don't know how he healed me. I just know this. He touched me. I was blind. And now I can see. That's it. That's all I know. Just like the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4 who also didn't have all the answers of how Jesus knew everything that she ever did. Whether it's the Samaritan woman or the blind man man here in chapter 9, the power is in the testimony of what Jesus is and did. That's where the power is. Because of Jesus, this insignificant person, a man who had been, who made a living out of being off to the side, begging. The, you imagine, a, 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 I don't know if you've been in a, a big city before with any kind of regularity, and you pass the same homeless beggars over and over and over again. They just become a permanent fixture to the sidewalk. You don't even think about it. it, it there is, it's as natural that that man is sitting there as that building is standing there. Because it's their life. That's, they're a permanent fixture to the, to the, to the landscape. And here you have this, this permanent fixture of this blind, insignificant beggar who had nothing to offer anybody. And now, because of Jesus, he has a message to share, doesn't he? And even more than that, the man is the message. Living, breathing, a person who is a sign of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do in a person's life. Thomas Oden once wrote, when the the apostles began to try and express what had happened to them, this is post-resurrection, when the disciples began to try and express what had happened to them, they did not begin with a system of metaphysics or ethical injunctions or scientific data. Rather, they began with experiential testimony of the interpersonal meeting they had with the risen Christ that made all things new. Isn't that interesting? Surely the apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit and, and trained in, in the, the scriptures, even not formally, they, were, they grew up with the scriptures, they knew the scriptures, surely they could, they could stand toe-to-toe with anybody and debate. And we know Paul did. Paul especially was trained, and Paul was equipped to, to, to debate at the highest level of, of, of scholarship, and he could, he could go toe-to-toe with anybody. But at the end of the day, that's not where they began, is it? They didn't begin with with the, the deep arguments or philosophical ideas. No. They shared what they saw. They shared what they experienced. They shared what Jesus did. And the same is true, I would contend, for us. There is a time and a place for arguments from logic or arguments from science or arguments from history and so on. And, and I think the, the Christian faith can stand up to any of the accusations or, that skeptics in the world can throw. Any of them. But at base, at base, we're not all called to be a professional apologists, but you and I are all called here this morning to simply introduce people to Jesus. To tell people what we have seen to tell people what we have experienced, to to convey, to communicate, however inarticulately, what God has done in my life. And don't think for a second that it doesn't matter whether you do or don't. Jesus dismisses that notion there in verse 4 when he he presents that to, to his disciples, and by extension to you and to me, that the task before us of sharing who he is and what he has done with all the world, it's huge. It is a gigantic task that lies before us. It's 
Its implications are vast. Its urgency is great. There are people all around you in your life, in your neighborhood, and at work, in your family, who spiritually are no different than the condition of this man. They are blind to the things of God. They have no hope. They have no future beyond this life. All that exists is what happens around them today and tomorrow. If I can just earn another dollar, if I can just indulge in another pleasure, if I can just have another moment, if I can just enjoy this or acquire that, and life is all about stuff and about the world, and it's empty. Because when you die, where does it go? It goes to someone else. You don't take it with you. And the way the government is, your kids probably aren't going to get much of what you leave them. Is it possible that the very things that cause you the most pain and the most distress and the greatest suffering in life are the very things that God desires to use most for his glory? Oh man, that's the question, isn't it? There's a reason why it's bold and underlined in my notes. That's the question. Think about it. Think about your life. Every person in here is bearing something. Every one of you. Some of you are bearing something relatively minor. Others, you are bearing something deep. And the, the, the human impulse, the natural human impulse, when experiencing suffering and pain is to, is to doubt. It's to question. Now, God is big enough to handle your doubts and your questions. I'm not concerned about defending God there. What I am trying to do is, is call you believing Christians to think differently about the things that are going on in your life. Not that they don't hurt. Not that they're not significant. Not that they're not, in some cases, very grave situations that require lots of your attention and, and energy. And, and, they, and they are perhaps even sources of danger or risk or something in your life. I don't want to dismiss anything that anybody's carrying here this morning. But what I want to ask is, is it possible that even those things are the very things God desires to use most for his glory. Is that not the case with every one of the sign accounts so far in John? Think about it. There's not enough wine. A major social crisis <laughs> for the groom. There's not enough life. My son is dying. There's not enough health to make it to the waters that heal. There's, there's, not enough, there's not enough food to feed all the people. There's not enough safety out here on the sea. There's not enough sight for my life to have any purpose. To, have, to enjoy what everyone else in the world takes for granted every second of the day. And yet, the answer to every crisis after crisis after crisis is Jesus. Jesus revealing his glory. The, the self-disclosure of his person and his work. He does it in the midst of the crisis. And none of his works, none of the miracles are mere naked demonstrations of power. They're signs. Works of the Father through his Son to shed light on those who live in darkness. The man became the sign. 
And the purpose behind his greatest suffering was God's glory. And the same can be true for you and for me. Now, the discussion of his blindness, as we've already seen, points to the cross. But I would contend that so does the manner of his healing. And you might be saying, how on earth does that point to the cross? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. I wonder if the man ever stopped and and considered how Jesus made the mud. (laughs) Look again here in, in, uh, in verse 11. When he's asked what happened to him, it says he told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. I think, you know, he was blind when Jesus was making the mud, wasn't he? And it's not like Jesus said, hold on a minute, I'm going to spit in the dirt and mix up some mud and paste it on your face. No, he had no, it just says Jesus, he's talking to his disciples about this man. And as far as the man was concerned, they're having some sort of discussion about his life. And suddenly, He's like, you can see just like the shock of the, the feeling of something being smeared on his face. And I think by the time he washed and had, and had himself clean and then could see, he didn't even care at that point how the mud was made. But I care. <laughs> it matters to me. Yes, I, I, Jack, you prayed right. The, the human body is wonderfully made. But I'll be honest, I tend to find other people's extracellular fluids and bodily excretions disgusting. It's gross, isn't it? I wonder how much spit he used. Now look, I'm not trying to be gross, but I'm being I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying to think about the text. You know, was it just like a, a kind of thing? Or is Jesus like, no, I'm not gonna make the sound. <clears throat> You're welcome. I'll spare you. Fifty percent of you almost gagged in your mouths right there. But it's gross, isn't it? It's gross. Come on, Jesus. (laughs) To turn the water into wine, he didn't spit in the jars or the well. But he didn't. To heal the boy, he was 20 miles away. The man, well, you just told him to stand and he did. You didn't spit on him, you didn't you know, do anything else to him. You just told him. And, and sure, you had your disciples, you know, distribute the loaves and the fishes to the crowds, but, but you and I all know that they used Purell on their hands before they started doing that, don't we? <laughs> Why did he spit in the dirt and smear it on his face? Honestly, it, it almost at, on the surface seems like a cruel prank on a hapless victim. Something you see on a movie somewhere. Imagine that today with how terrified everyone is of germs and respiratory droplets. But look, the severity of Jesus' transgressions here in this chapter run even deeper than just doing something that is considered maybe gross or taboo by people. You see, Jesus broke the rules. Jesus broke the rules. You don't work on the Sabbath. And according to the, 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 the tradition of interpretation that everyone was imprisoned to at this time in, in the world, Jesus broke the rules at least three different ways. There's at least three categories of work that Jesus engaged in here that broke the rules. First of all, he, he did a healing. And everyone knows you don't heal on a Sabbath unless someone's life is at risk. Kind of silly rule, isn't it? You know, he also broke the rule, uh, the, a category of work uh, that needing falls into, 
because you have to need to make mud, right? You're, make, you're making something. He broke the rules. Broke the rules, Jesus. I think even anointing of the eyes was, a, was considered a disallowed category of work. Jesus is breaking the rules left and right. But I think the matter goes even deeper still than just a guy breaking the rules. You see, what Jesus did here even runs to the issue of ceremonial uncleanliness. Based on Leviticus 15.8, the belief was that uncleanliness can be conveyed by, you guessed it, saliva. An unclean person who spits on you makes you unclean too. So not only is Jesus breaking the rules on Sabbath, he's going around making people unclean. It's not just one man breaking the rules. It's one man going around affecting others. He's a bad example. He's thumbing his, you know, shaking his fist in the, the face of tradition. And our, he's undermining our authority. And he's making everyone else around him affected too. But here's the thing about Jesus that they didn't know. Because they failed to see the glory behind the sign is that Jesus' touch doesn't convey uncleanliness. Jesus' touch cleanses it. He, He cleanses it. He transforms it. He takes it away. He doesn't convey it. He eradicates it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, if you would. If you, if you don't want to, you don't have to. It's, it's going to be on the screen here behind you. But you, here's another well-known story that my mind went to as I was working through preparing this for this morning. And it's the passage from, um, it's actually, I believe, the first specific miracle passage ascribed to Jesus in the book of Matthew with detail. It's almost like Matthew's trying to make a point about this ministry of Jesus, who this person is and what he has come to do. So after the Sermon on the Mount, we get chapter 8, verse 1. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. And Jesus reached out, and don't miss, don't miss the magnitude of what happens here. Jesus reached out and touched him. He could have done anything he wanted with the, with the word. He could have done the genie wink. You know, I dream a genie. Was it I dream a genie that did a little wink? Could have done any, at least one person here knows what I'm talking about. Thank you, Yar, for giving me the obligatory chuckle. He could have done anything he wanted. But he reached out and he touched him. A leper. And he says, I am willing. I am willing. Be healed. And, and I'm not a fan of the NLT here. Because the Greek verb is not the general sort of heal, healing verb. That's other places. Jesus healed. But no, no. The question is, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Can you make me clean? And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. 
And then he said, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along, take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony, and the NLT finally gets it right here, that you have been cleansed. Not just healed. Cleansed. I think it was last Easter or maybe the Easter before the Sight and Sound Theater uh, put their Jesus presentation on, on TV. And anyone could watch it on TBN or one of those channels. And my family and I, we, we, we got to watch it. And I think my favorite scene that I remember at least was this one right here. When Jesus and his disciples encounter this man and Jesus goes up and touches him and all the disciples are like panicking. Like, I can't believe he just did this. And, and they know that to touch a leper is a death sentence. It, 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 leprosy it was to them a living death where you lose all the, you know what leprosy is, you lose all the, sen- the, the sensation and, and you get injuries and, and things fall off you and it's disgusting. But even worse than that, you're cast out. You're an outcast. You're cut off. It's a living death. It is the, the epitome of unclean. And Jesus just goes right up and touches him. And after he heals the man, the man runs off. He turns, and, and, the, and the disciples are still horrified, especially Peter. He can't believe what has just happened. He's grossed out. He's, he's blown away. And Jesus walks by him and just kind of pats him on the face as he goes on by. I love how they, pre, how they present that. <laughs> yes, to touch a leper meant contracting the uncleanliness, but Jesus' touch does what? It takes it away. It takes it away. And so the sign reveals the glory that all Jesus touches, he heals. All of it. And if there's power in his spit, how much more power is in his blood? And in this light, his command for this one to go wash in the pool of Siloam is an implicit and universal command for all to wash in the fountain of Calvary. As John says in his first epistle, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Every bit. The waters don't heal. The mud doesn't heal. No, Jesus heals. And Jesus, I hope, I hope this connects with your heart this morning, because it does with me. Jesus isn't afraid to get his hands dirty in your life. No matter how dirty you are, no matter how vile you feel, no matter how unclean He can touch you this morning. Jesus is that new Adam who has taken on the human nature that he might touch and heal the human nature, that he might redeem us from our sins, and he has glorified the the human person, and he wants to pass on to you and to me his own righteousness in life. I read, I mentioned what Paul said back in Romans 5, 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But he, conclu- he continues in verse 15, he says this, 
But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our becoming made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it and will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Whatever your uncleanness is, whatever your impurity, whatever your sin, Jesus offers healing and cleansing and power. The Pharisees' obsession with the rules and the hardness of their hearts prevented them from seeing the glory this sign pointed to, and it transformed what should have been a pun intended eye opening experience into an occasion for suspicion and doubt and outrage. And to this, Jesus says in verse 39 I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. And this plays out right before us in these verses, doesn't it? You have the man who is the, the very picture of, of natural man's condition, you know, man apart from God. He's a very essence of it, who, as Paul says in Romans 121, whose thinking has become futile and whose foolish hearts have become darkened. That's the condition of man by default when we're brought into this world. But as the man's eyes are opened in progressive stages, wider and wider and wider, he moves from saying at first in verse 11 that he's the man they call Jesus, to then in verse 17, well, he must be a prophet. You see the progression. The man they call Jesus, he must be a prophet. He moves from being convinced he was sent from God in verse 33 to in verse 38, worshiping him as God. It's an incredible thing. We get to witness this man's journey of faith resulting in his commitment to Jesus as Lord. And just as that's happening in his life, you see the exact opposite happening in the life of the Pharisees. It's incredible to me. Their anger and their indignation in this twist of irony, their accusations in in verse 34 that he's a total sinner, he's always been a total sinner from birth, that accusation actually confirms the very thing they've been trying to argue against, i.e. that he was born blind. They don't even see it, that they've undermined their own argument in their accusations out of their rage. If if he was born blind, then Jesus must have healed him then, huh? They don't even see it. And how many people in your life are so blinded and so darkened that they refuse to see the obvious? And they'll argue in circles, and they'll even go back and undercut their own theories, but they don't even care because it doesn't matter because the condition is not an intellectual condition. It's a condition of the heart. I refuse to see the truth. I refuse to stay in darkness. And Jesus said, my teaching, my life, what I do will have that exact effect on some. I've come to show those who think they can see that they are blind. I have come to take those who are blind and allow them to see. It's the double-edged sword of Jesus. So great is their blindness, they're blind to the irony of their own rage. By the way, they're not only blind to that, they're blind to the very scriptures they claim to love that, that said, 
one of the, the marks of the Messianic age is that the blind will see. It couldn't have been more clear. Thank you, Lucas. Perfectly reading from Isaiah there, and I think chapter 35. He says in 38, I think also in 42, you will be a light. This is speaking of the Messiah. You will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. It will happen. That'll be a sign that he is who I say he is. You will free the captives from prison, resulting, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. But there's some who, who refuse. There are some who will refuse their entire lives. Despite over and over and over again, God exposing the darkness of their hearts, offering to them gifts of grace and mercy and goodness, things that can't be explained, blessing upon blessing. God lavishes these things on us because God wishes no one to perish. He wants everyone to come to faith in his son so that you can live. And yet we reject it over and over and over again, descending further and further into the the hardened darkness of the heart, refusing to see the glory of who Jesus is and what he came to do. The very one who is light in life itself. So tragic. And in light of that, the question in verse 35 bears weight, not just for the one man in our passage, but for you and for me, for all of us. Do you believe in the Son of Man? In light of all these things, What about you? Not just when things are going well. It's easy to do that. (laughs) It's easy to to shout hallelujah when, you know, you get your tax refund. (laughs) You can go buy a PlayStation now. Life is good. (laughs) No. Do you believe in the Son of Man even in your suffering? Thank you, Job. I'm going to shave my head and tear my clothes and worship. Not because I understand the why, but because I know the who. I know him. I don't know why this is happening. I don't have a perfectly worked out philosophy of suffering. But I know him and I worship him. Will you put your trust in the one who is the very revelation of God to man? As John says in his prologue, the word incarnate, who came from the Father's bosom, from the Father's own heart. Only one who comes from there can make the heart of God known. And that's what Jesus does. He steps onto the same earth is that you and I've lived all of our lives on and he looks people square in the face and says do you want to know what God is like? Really like? Here you go. Here you go. Will you keep trying to explain Jesus away by your own interpretation of facts or will you let him be the one through whom alone the deepest significance of everything in life can be discerned? Every avenue the blind man had, had taken in his life led him nowhere. We don't know how old he, he was, but we know this. He'd been blind his whole life. And no doctor could heal him. And the very people entrusted with his, his spiritual life had cast him out. Only Jesus can provide what he truly needs 
Only Jesus is the answer to the man's truest desire. Who is the Son of Man? I want to believe in him. And Jesus, in a beautiful tongue-in-cheek, you have seen him. He's speaking to you now. Eyes, testimony. You hear him. Have you seen and heard him this morning? Not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith renewed. Will you believe in him? Will you look to his glory on the cross? Will you allow him to touch and cleanse and heal you in the deepest place of where you are? Yes, when we ask for prayer requests, 99% of them are physical requests. I've got a bum knee. I have back surgery. Someone has COVID. And God cares about it all. And God can heal it all. Oh, I, I long for, the, for people who say, I've been struggling with this sin. And I know that nothing else can free me from it but Jesus. Nothing. I feel dirty. What my eyes have taken in, what my ears have taken in, what, have I allowed, what I've allowed to take root in my heart. Oh, I need Jesus to root it out and give me cleansing. I beg you to ask for prayer for that. That's what Jesus is ultimately concerned with. He wants to touch and cleanse you there. To shine light even in the darkest crack and crevice of your heart and soul. The place that no one else has access. You don't want anyone else to see it. You, don't, you won't go there. You won't tell anyone. You won't let on. You keep the nice Christian smile and you got your, your coat and your tie on. And you come to church and you say, hi brother this and hi brother that. And someone says, how are you doing? You say, I'm good. And you're a liar. And Jesus says, I know you're not good. I see what's beneath the surface. I'm the heart knower. Will you give me your heart? In faith, just give it to me. His plans are greater and deeper than your own. And there's nothing ultimately random or coincidental in your life, is there? No, not even your worst suffering. He's in it and working through it, and he wants to make you a sign that reveals his glory. Will you do that today? Let him do that in you today? If so, you're welcome to come and pray. Who cares what anyone thinks if they see you kneeling up here? Chances are, 90% of the people who see you come and pray will feel convicted that they should be praying too. But we're so afraid to get up in front of people anymore. Forget it. Come pray. Quit playing games. Quit being religious and come to Jesus. And let him touch you. Let him take away your suffering. Let him, even if he doesn't take it away, at least let him join you in it and offer himself to you to walk with you and carry you if need be. Give him your uncleanness. Let him, let him wash it with his blood that was poured out for you. Not because you're such a great person or because you've done anything to earn it, but because he loves you. Don't wait another second. Come to Jesus today. Lord, I pray that you would give courage Courage to your people to have faith. And it's not a matter of whether they come kneel up front of the church, whatever. However you lead them, Lord, would they just say yes to you? We bear all this weight and we carry all this baggage and we live in prison to all these things. And, and, and we're content to just say, oh, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner. And you said, no, I came to take it away, every bit of it to free you, to cleanse you, to fill you with my life, that you could be the sign that reveals my glory to the world. 
Lord, help us to be a church that is precisely that. And for someone today, it begins with taking a step from the comfort of their chair and kneeling on these padded mats. Someone. Lord, would you lead your people to respond as you desire for us to respond today. We pray in your name. Amen.